Do people know the real you, or do they only know the you that you allow them to see? We spend an awful lot of time and energy curating a, a certain image of ourselves so that we are perceived in a certain light by others. We want people to see us as generous, people who are, give, people who are giving with their time, who speak well of others, and who are, who are spoken well of. We do all of this so that people perceive us in a certain light, even if that perception doesn't necessarily match reality. This is the whole premise of what social media has become. It, not what it started out as. It started out as this beautiful thing to be able to connect to people, but now it's become this way to curate a life for others to see. You know what I mean by that? We spend an awful lot of time on social media behind a screen curating this idyllic life, this life that has everything put together through carefully doctored photos and calculated posts and curated, uh, curated words. We are able to convey a life to others that we want them to see. But maybe it's not the real you. But why do we do that? Why do we curate a life through carefully calculated posts and conversations? Well, it's an action that's born out of fear. We fear that people won't like the real us. We fear that people, when they see who we really are, and not hiding behind a screen, but but laying everything bare, that it's not going to be interesting enough. We fear what people might say or think or do when they, when they see that the, the, the doctored photos and the carefully calculated and curated conversations aren't what's actually going on in your heart. And so we put this practice of a carefully calculated and curated life together. And so I ask, do people know the real you, or do they only know the you that you want them to see? Now, for the Christian, there's even a greater and deeper implication to all of this. I wonder if I ask you that question regarding your faith. Do people know your real faith? Or do they know a faith that you've carefully calculated and curated for them to see? Because the reality is, if we are so quick to curate and calculate our life on social media and for others to see, then it's only a short leap to doing this with our faith. And the reason that we would do it with our faith is the same reason that we do it with our daily lives. It's an action born out of fear. We fear what others might say or think or do because of who we believe in, who we have faith in. We fear what somebody might say if, if we speak the truth about Jesus being the only way to heaven. We fear being ostracized by family or friends for speaking out about the evils of a particular sin that they are committing. We fear the harsh actions that might come about if we speak about Christianity as the only right religion in a culture and in a, in a society that is polytheistic and pluralistic. We are living in a time that is anti-Christian, where anti-Christian, anti-religious rhetoric is on the rise and Christianity is on a downfall, especially if you look at the numbers. And it's for these reasons that we face the temptation to curate and to calculate our faith. And do you know what happens? Or do you know what people have over you when this is the thing that you fear? when you fear what somebody might do to you, when you fear what somebody might say about you, when you fear what somebody might think about you because of what you believe. This is going to sound nuts, and it's going to, it blows my mind, but these people have authority over you. If they are dictating how you speak, how you act, what you believe in, then these people, some of whom you've never even met, just simply read about online and the things that they are saying about Christians, these people have authority over you, and this authority 
dictates how you curate and how you calculate your life. But in our gospel for this morning, Jesus shows us not only the danger of having a curated faith, but where having a curated faith ultimately ends up. It ends up with you being trapped. I mean, this is what happened with those religious leaders that Jesus encountered during Holy Week. Our gospel for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 21. And remember, Holy Week is that week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with the, clouds with the crowds acclaiming him as king. And his first stop on Palm Sunday was to go to the temple. And do you remember what he found? He found that they had turned it into a marketplace. And so Jesus goes in and he, and perhaps this, this amazing fit of godly rage over what they had done to the temple, he goes in and he just simply cleans house. He flips over tables and yells at the people saying, you have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. And then after causing this huge ruckus, he goes away to Bethany, just a city right outside of Jerusalem. And then on Holy Monday, which is where Matthew 21 takes place, this is where we find Jesus back in the temple, this time not to clean house, but to teach. And as he's teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people come up to Jesus. You see, these guys, they were the authorities. They were the authority on all matters of religion and life. And so they see this guy, Jesus, who had just yesterday flipped over temples, created this huge ruckus, or flipped over tables, created this huge ruckus, and robbed them of a source of income that they had, because no doubt those people were renting and giving that money to these chief priests. But now Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching. And they never gave him, as the religious authorities, authority to stand and preach, especially to preach and teach what he was doing or what he was saying. Because these religious leaders, they preached a life that is lived by the law. You follow the law, the Ten Commandments, the 611 other laws, and you are good in this life, and you are good with God. But Jesus, he was preaching a way of life and a way of faith that was not based on who you are and what you do, but based on what somebody, namely him, would do for you. And this angered the Pharisees. And so they come up to Jesus, not necessarily displaying their anger quite yet, but they come and they ask these carefully curated and calculated questions. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus wouldn't be trapped by their calculated questions. Instead, he turns the tables on them and traps them in their calculated faith. He offers them a, a quid pro quo of sorts. He says, I'll tell you, I'll give you the answer that you want, but first you have to answer my question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Did it come from heaven or did it come from men? Now these men, they, they have a little sidebar. These religious authorities, they come together and discuss in their authority what they should do. And instead of just giving the answer right away, do you see what they did or remember what they did? They calculated how they should respond. They, in essence, ran a cost-benefit analysis for each, in, for each uh, answer that they could give. If we say heaven, then Jesus will condemn us for our unbelief. But if we say that John's baptism came from men, then we fear what the people might do because these people hold that John was a prophet. Now, do you notice what they discussed? They didn't discuss what they believed. That is, did John come from God or from men or was sent from God or from men? What they discussed was the cost of what each answer would bring. One answer would bring condemnation, the other might incite a riot. So how did they answer? They figured the, the safest answer possible, the one that would bring about the least amount of damage, well, they calculated that it would be not really giving any answer at all. So they said, Jesus, we don't know. You see, for these men, faith was more like social posturing than it was a deep-seated trust in God. 
the entirety of these religious leaders' lives was one big calculation. Remember I said earlier they taught this way of life and religion that was all, and faith that was all based on the law. It was based on who you are and what you did. It was based on following these laws, and if you followed these laws, then your life was good. And not only was your life good, you were probably in pretty good standing with your God. The entirety of their life was one big calculation, but it was also one big curation because as these religious authorities, they wanted to be held up as these outwardly righteous people. They wanted to be used as examples so that they could point to themselves and say, this is how you live a righteous life. The problem is these people cared more, these authorities cared more about their outward righteousness and their reputation before these people than they did about giving the answer. They knew the answer to Jesus' question. They admitted as much when they're having their little sidebar. Do you see what is being held over their hearts as an authority? It's the fear of what Jesus or these people might do. They fear condemnation. They fear a riot. And so they really give no answer at all. And right there, Jesus has them trapped in their calculated, curated faith. The same thing, as hard as it is to admit, happened to me this past week. I was at a coffee shop on Wednesday meeting with, meeting with somebody, and after the normal coffee shop small talk that happens, uh, this person asked me a question about Lutheran theology and about why I believe and teach what I do as a Lutheran pastor. The question itself, it wasn't overly difficult. It was multifaceted, but... It wasn't that hard. I knew the answer. I could point to four or five different places in Scripture where, where you could find it. But you know what I did? I acted like those religious leaders. I ran a cost-benefit analysis for each one of the answers that I could possibly give. On the one hand, I could boldly and proudly and confidently, with all of the faith that God has given me, answer in the truth but there's a good chance that that truth would shut down the conversation and I'd lose an opportunity to continue to get to the conversation that I actually want to have, which is Jesus dying for your sins. Or I could give a curated version of the truth. One that isn't the whole truth, but kind of limps him along until I can actually say the thing that I want to say. And which one did I choose? I chose the second. I chose the carefully curated version of the truth. And I could couch it in some excuse that my sinful nature made, which was I just wanted another opportunity to share the gospel, but that's just an excuse. Really, I was fearful. I was fearful of, what that, of that conversation with this person, where it would lead and that it would end. I acted just like those religious leaders did, and I curated and I calculated my faith. You know what this is like. You've experienced it before in work or at school or... Uh, with friends or family, because inevitably the conversation about what you believe, who you believe in, why you act the way you do, eventually it comes up. You can't avoid it. And when you did, or when it does come up, what kind of answer did you give? Did you give the bold, uncalculated, uncurated answer that says, I believe in Jesus as my Savior from sin because God in the waters of baptism and through the authority and the power of his holy word made me his own and planted a faith deep in my heart that trusts in this truth and this faith, it transforms everything about my day-to-day life, the way I speak, the way I act, what I do on a Sunday morning, how I schedule my time. Is that the answer that you gave? Or did you act like me or those religious leaders who ran a cost-benefit analysis and you figured that the cost 
of giving the bold, uncurated, uncalculated truth was greater than the benefit of it. And so you gave a curated answer. When people and what they might do to you hold the authority over your heart, they have the power to dictate how you act and what you believe and how you act on that belief. And as we live in a world that grows increasingly anti-Christian, we have to ask ourselves, how do we avoid this temptation and this trap? How do we avoid this temptation and the trap that Jesus caught the religious leaders in, this, this temptation of a curated, calculated faith? Well, the way that you avoid it is by having one authority, by having one authority over your hearts and your lives. And that authority is not the fear of what some people might do to you if you believe. It's, it's the authority and the power of the word of God. This is the only authority that Jesus wants you to have over your heart. Because the word of God, it's not just some words on a page contained in a book compiled 2,000 years ago. The word of God is the very power of God. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is truth and life. The word of God gives life. Through the authority of his word, God the Spirit makes what was dead alive again. You are now all, through the power of the Spirit, the walking dead and the crucified living because of what the word has done for you. Through the power and the authority of the word, God uses that word to create a faith in your heart, an uncalculated, uncurated faith that doesn't calculate the cost of what it means to, of what might happen if you say you believe in Jesus. It just simply believes. This is the authority that God wants you to have over your heart, the only authority. And this is the authority that helps you avoid the temptation of a carefully calculated and curated faith. Because when the word of God is the sole source and authority over your heart and your life, it elicits and works change. This is the whole point of the parable that Jesus told when he's speaking to these religious leaders. It's a parable all about change. Jesus tells this parable where a man has two sons. And to these two sons, he gives the same command. Son, today go and work in my vineyard. And the first son, he says, I will not go. But then he changes his mind and he goes. The second son, he says, I will go, father. But then he doesn't go. And he stays at home and does whatever he wants. Which son is judged as doing the wrong thing in this parable? It's the second son, right? And why is that? Because his whole relationship with, with his father was a matter of calculation. The son looked at his father and the command that his father gave him and simply gave him the answer that he wanted to see. He curated and calculated what his father expected to receive as a response. It, it, it appeased his father. And then as soon as his father went away, he didn't go to work. His whole life was a matter of calculation. You see, for Jesus, he doesn't want these calculated and curated responses as if they are faith. Jesus doesn't want us to say that we believe if we don't. He doesn't want us to, speak, to say we speak the truth if we don't. He doesn't want us to say we love if we don't. For Jesus, calculated and curated responses aren't faith. Instead, Jesus came for you and to you and invited you to follow him to free you from the game of calculated and curated responses. He invited you to live freely with him in a life that is a faithful response to everything he has done for you. And the way in which that kind of life happens is having the authority and the power of the word of God as the only source that guides 
every aspect of your faith and of your life. Because when the word of God is the only authority over your heart, it elicits change. And this is what we see in the first son. Something happened with the first son. He told his father he wouldn't go to work, but then he changed his mind and he eventually went. The word that is used for for change your mind, it implies a regret over your action and a desire to do things better next time, to do things differently. And do you know what we call this? We call this repentance. Repentance is a 180 degree turn of heart and mind. Repentance is having sorrow over your sin and trusting that Jesus forgives you of all of those sins that you have committed in this life. And the only way that repentance, is, that repentance happens is through the, the authority and the power of the word of God working in your heart. This is what Jesus shows us in this first son, this change of heart and mind and going and doing the thing that he should. This uncalculated, uncurated going to work for his father. This is what God has given you. He has given you the word that elicits this kind of change and enables you to live a first son kind of life. See, when the word of God with all of its power and authority works in your heart, the law, it comes to you and it accuses you and it convicts you and it condemns you of your sin. The law tells you that something needs to change. Without the law of God working in your heart, there is no need to change. And the sinful nature loves when no law is preached because the sinful nature loves to lurch around in the dark, carefully curating and calculating all of the responses it can to, to have this perceived fake life and a fake faith and a fake response before God, and it will happily lurch around in the dark there forever undisturbed. But the law of God prevents that. And when the law of God accuses and convicts and condemns, then comes in the beautiful, sweet message of the gospel. The power and the authority of the gospel can be found in nowhere else and in no one else but God alone. And while the law is written in the heart of every man, the, the gospel is a stranger and an alien to sinful hearts like ours. It must be revealed. And when the gospel was revealed to each and every one of you, it tells you this, that Jesus entered into your sin and by his death gives you the forgiveness of sins and by his resurrection, he gives you life. The, the law, it convicts you of your sin. The gospel tells you that you are forgiven. And these two coupled together, the authority and the power of the word of God enable you to live a first son kind of life, a life that is repentant, a life that is bold, a life that is uncurated, and uncalculated. Now I get that that's hard. Living a life that is uncurated and uncalculated, it's difficult because whether we like to admit it or not, people will still come at us and attack us for our faith. They'll still think of us as odd and different. But Jesus says, you know what, none of that matters. The authority and the power of the word of God working in your heart enables you to to live out a uncalculated, uncurated faith regardless of what might happen. Because you see, we don't follow Jesus based on a calculated cost-benefit analysis. We follow Jesus because he is Jesus. And he forgives our sins. And he gives us eternal life. He gives us new life. Life that is changed for here and now and forever in eternity. And it's a life that follows Jesus regardless of what might happen. Because look, we talked about this in our Bible study this morning, but what is the worst thing that somebody can do to you if you believe in him, if you believe in Jesus? It's the worst thing. They kill you. You die. But what does Jesus say all over scripture? Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. 
These are all beautiful promises given to you and show you that death, even if it is death for faith, is actually a blessing. So friends, go now and speak and live as children of God in an uncalculated, uncurated manner, not worrying about what somebody might do to you if you believe, but believing in spite of what they might do to you. Because by believing, you have life in his name. God grant it. Amen.